This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. So I know that uh, not all of you are going to practice medicine, but as we spoke about earlier, all of you are going to die. Um, and I want us to think tonight about what it looks like to die well, and particularly what does medicine have to do with creating the conditions that make it possible for people to die well. Uh, before I go further, I just want to mention that at Duke we have this very unusual program that is uh, might be of interest to some folks, and I wanted to give you a chance to know about it. It's called the Theology, Medicine, and Culture Initiative, where we invite people who have vocations to healthcare but want deeper theological training to, to, to uh, think uh, about healthcare in a theological framework to come and study with us at Duke's Divinity School. And there are a couple ways to do that. Check us out if that's of interest at all. So as we often do in the field of medicine, I'm going to follow a case to help us work through the questions about, what it, about how we die well and what medicine has to do with that. So Elsie's a 50-year-old carpenter. He and his wife are proud parents of twin daughters. And one day, Elsie's wife notices his eyes look yellow. And Elsie goes to see his doctor. Imaging reveals a tumor in the pancreas with multiple lesions in the liver. A procedure is done to place a stent in Elsie's bile duct. Um, we don't have to go into the medical details of that. And biopsies confirm everyone's fears. Elsie has metastatic pancreatic cancer. So what does it mean to care well for Elsie? To be a good physician to him in the future he faces. And closely related to question, question to those is, how does what has come to be called palliative medicine, which Liz and I were talking about earlier, which I practice, or palliative care, fit into good medicine for Elsie? What I'm going to propose to you this evening is that the answers that are characteristically given to those questions in our time and the assumptions that underlie those answers are not well-founded. I'll argue that in order to practice good medicine for LC, doctors will need to reject the way that contemporary medicine typically frames care for patients at the end of life and will need to recover an older and more adequate framework. So part one is sort of how do we end up with the approach to dying and medicine in life that we have today. Since the advent of the positive pressure ventilator, which is the ventilator we're all familiar with, not the, the uh, iron lung from a prior era, but the positive pressure ventilator, in the late 1960s, the ethical concern that's most often voiced regarding end-of-life care is how to free dying patients from the unnecessary suffering and the degradation that's caused by the overuse of life-sustaining technologies. Patients and physicians, ethicists and theologians, the religious and the unreligious alike have decried how the default pathway for those who die within healthcare institutions uses life-sustaining technology to postpone death as long as possible. Now, I know you're not medical practitioners, but you might have seen something like this, a family member, a friend, seen it certainly on a television show. Um, this is very common. By trapping patients in a 
technologically driven institutional matrix that imposes undue suffering and isolates patients from their communities, the default pathway poses formidable barriers to patients dying well. And the typical strategy to address this problem has been to expand and to enhance palliative care and hospice. And hospice and palliative care have been expanded. They've been expanded markedly, so much so that for patients like LC, a palliative approach to their remaining, uh, their remaining health care now poses a strong rival to what I described as this default pathway. So it would be normal, even expected in our time, for LC's physician to offer and perhaps even to encourage and recommend a strategy that focuses on symptom management, uh, focuses on his function, sets aside chemotherapy, radiation, and surgery, and tries to keep him at home as much as possible. As a rival to the default pathway in which you die in the ICU like this, long after being restored to health has vanished, palliative care does much to help patients who are dying. How does it do that? Thoughts? What, what do you guys think? How, how, do, how do you think palliative care helps people who are dying? What's the first thing that comes to mind? Eases pain. Eases pain. People what? Keeps people company. Good. So it, it com companies with those who are sick and eases pain. Those are, the, I think the, the relief of pain particularly is the one that comes to people's people's mind. But I, I think the first thing that hospice and palliative medicine does to make it possible for people to die well is it provides an alternative to this, to the default pathway. It provides a way to get off the technological medicine train. For the most part, patients and physicians agree that whatever dying well entails, certainly it entails more and less than keeping one's matter in motion as long as possible, isolated from one's community and under the control of machines and a system of processes that go on with relentless and unfeeling logic. The default pathway makes it hard for patients like LC to die well because it puts off preparation for death through vain promises to extend life indefinitely. The overuse of life-sustaining technology absorbs time, attention, and resources that could be devoted to other more worthwhile tasks. For example, long before someone ends up like uh, this gentleman, driving back and forth to the hospital leaves less time for reconciling with one's spouse or neighbors. It's difficult to pray or to write letters to one's children or organize one's estate while one is retching from chemotherapy. Moreover, the default pathway isolates patients like LC from the communities, and I think here particularly of religious communities, that share a framework of meaning thick and strong enough to guide and support the patient in living well in the face of death. Sort of to give, give a structure of meaning for those who are accompanying with the one who is dying. So if nothing else, the growth of hospice and palliative care has removed the take it for grantedness and weakened the grip of this default pathway of dying. Hospice and palliative care also creates a recognizable social space in which a patient can be described as dying and not merely sick and can therefore take on the dying role. In his book, Being Mortal, which Liz and I also were speaking about, the surgeon writer Atul Gawande writes that one of the challenges in caring well for those who are dying is that it is hard to say when someone is dying. Uh, 
we all feel terribly awkward in saying when someone is dying. He writes, technology can sustain our organs until we are well past the point of awareness and coherence. How then do you attend to the thoughts and concerns of the dying when medicine has made it almost impossible to be sure who the dying even are? Is someone with terminal cancer, dementia, or incurable heart failure dying? Exactly. Is LC dying? Is this patient dying? One of the refreshing aspects of my work in hospice is that in my encounters with patients, the pretense of fixing the problem is gone. Everyone, when I see patients in hospice, everyone has agreed that the patient is dying. Not necessarily within hours or days, but soon and for certain. And that agreement has a way of focusing the attention of everyone involved on how to support the patient as he or she dies. For medical practitioners, what can be done to be helpful in the face of certain and imminent death? For the patient like LC, how do I go on in the face of and in preparation for the death that I cannot avoid? For LC's wife and other members of his community, what does it mean to keep faith with and company with LC on this final part of his earthly journey? Now, in addition, by locating the social space of dying within the geographical space of the patient's home, rather than in the hospital, and by opening the geographical space of the hospital to accommodate the presence and participation of the home community, by being more facilitating of visitors, for example, hospice and palliative care removes institutional barriers that in the default pathway of technological medicine, these barriers keep patients and family members and friends and clergy off balance and at arm's length. <clears throat> Arguably, for a patient like Elsie, the most important part of living well in the face of impending death will happen in relationship with those to whom the patient belongs. Elsie's family, friends, church members, because hospice and palliative care moves the patient out into the community and invites the community into the spaces of healthcare, it helps to make patients, family, friends, neighbors, and clergy feel welcomed and empowered to contribute to LC, contribute what LC needs to die well. Now, suppose that two weeks after his diagnosis, LC returns to see his primary physician. He looks tired and sad. He tearfully notes that he's not sleeping well and he cannot concentrate or enjoy anything, not even being with his grandchildren, because he's so anxious about what lies ahead. I'm not ready to die, Elsie says. Why would God do this to me? Now, this not uncommon presentation highlights another way that hospice and palliative care helps patients who are dying, and that is by attending to the spiritual dimensions of patients' experiences. The National Consensus Project for quality palliative care identifies spiritual, religious, and existential aspects of care as the fifth of eight core domains of palliative care. And the uh, National Consensus Project is not alone. From the World Health Organization to the International Association for Hospice and Palliative Care to the Joint Commission for Hospital Accreditation, uh, contemporary visions of quality end-of-life care universally include attention to the patient as a spiritual being. In all of these ways then, hospice and palliative care helps patients who are dying. By posing a viable alternative to the default pathway, by creating a social space in which a patient can take on the dying role, by removing barriers to the patient's community, joining in that journey, by treating spiritual dimensions of dying as worthy of attention, 
Hospice and palliative care does much to help patients like LC die well. And note that that's prior to relieving any symptoms, prior to treating any pain. So where then is the rub? Here's where I hope the lecture's a little more interesting to you, it gets more interesting. Uh, the rub is that palliative care can also undermine and contradict the possibility of LC dying well. First, when it seeks comprehensively to manage LC's spiritual concerns, uh, which is something that hospice and palliative care aims to do frequently, it risks, I think, usurping the roles that patient, family, and community play in what was once called the Ars Moriendi. The term Ars Moriendi, which means simply the art of dying, it's Latin for the art of dying, it refers to a literature that emerged in the Middle Ages in response to the plague, which kept ripping through Europe. So many people were dying that the church could not keep up with the usual rites and practices of accompanying with those who were dying. And in response, the church affirmed and helped to promulgate a set of prints and booklets to guide lay people and those around them in preparing to die faithfully and well. These initial prints and booklets, I'll show you this here, these are, these are from that literature. These prints and booklets expanded to a literature that was disseminated all over Europe and which shaped the way people lived and died for centuries. For my purposes this evening, when I use the term ars moriendi, I'm referring to the, eye, the idea of dying well, which, as we'll see in a moment, is quite different from the conventional notion of a good death or a death with dignity. So one of the things I want you guys to take away from this is that dying well is not the same thing as what is typically meant by a death of dignity or a good death. For the moment, note that hospice and palliative care risks usurping the roles that patient, family, and community play in the Ars Moriendi. When and if it pretends to deliver a professionally packaged a form of spiritual care that substitutes for the part that a religious community would have played at the deathbed. The most problematic way that hospice and palliative care can undermine the possibility of LC dying well, I think though, is by removing the conditions necessary for LC or patients like him to participate in the Ars Moriendi. And this is often done unintentionally. The medications that relieve symptoms have side effects. Narcotics, tranquilizers, antipsychotics, can be very useful for relieving pain and anxiety and restlessness, but they can also diminish consciousness and reduce patients' capacity to be relationally present to others, to communicate, to pray, much less to engage in other activities. In so doing, these treatments can render patients passive to the process of dying, and therefore incapable of participating in the Ars Moriendi. By diminishing the consciousness of patients, these treatments also put patients existentially out of the reach of their communities and of their clinicians. This has been a prominent concern of many patients and their family members for whom I have cared within hospice on the south side of Chicago and in Durham, North Carolina. In the Ars Moriendi, clergy, lay counselors, not to mention family members, friends, relatives, um, sorry, obviously relatives and family members are the same thing, families, friends, and even physicians can company with and be present to the patient in the patient's suffering. This practice of presence, as it's sometimes called, 
goes to the heart of medicine. It's expressed in the term attending physician, indicating one who attends and makes herself present to the one who is ill. Yet insofar as patient's consciousness is diminished, patient's experience of that presence is likewise diminished. So how do we navigate the tension between relieving suffering and diminishing the conditions needed for patients to die well? I think we do that by recognizing that relieving suffering is not the only good at stake when you're seeking to care for someone who is dying. That when a patient is rendered unable to consciously participate in the activities of preparing for death, that patient has suffered a loss of something valuable. Hospice and palliative medicine practitioners are often in danger of not recognizing these effects of their treatments as losses. I shouldn't say not just hospice and palliative medicine, physicians in general in danger of not recognizing these effects as losses, as what, what medical practitioners call adverse side effects. Indeed, it sometimes seems as if the goal of comfort comes to displace all other goals, and in so doing renders consciousness and the patient's further participation in the Ars Moriendi a triviality. So how do we chart a way forward? I propose that to serve the, the Ars Moriendi, which is to say to be of a help uh, toward patients being able to die well, and to do that without usurping or undermining that possibility, palliation should be understood as a set of practices internal to medicine. So the relief of pain and symptoms, uh, comfort-directed care, should be understood as a practice inside of medicine, rather than as the basis for a rival form of professionalized care. Moreover, as part of medicine properly understood, palliation should be directed toward health aiming to relieve suffering just insofar as suffering is related to health. Now, let me unpack this with you guys, because this, this may seem kind of esoteric, but I think it's quite simple in the end and, and really consequential in how we think about what it means to die well and what role medicine plays in that. So at the outset, I asked, how does the work of palliative care practitioners fit into good medicine for LC? And I said that the obvious answer to this question, the answers that are characteristically given and assumptions that underlie those answers are not well founded. Here we begin to see why and how those answers go wrong. They go wrong first because contemporary medicine and medical ethics have come to deny, largely, deny the idea that medicine has a rational end, an intelligible, reasonable purpose that we do not merely make up but instead we recognize and we respect and which gives physicians a standard to guide their practices. There have been times and places in which it was axiomatic that the purpose of medicine is health. So Aristotle wrote, now since there are many actions, arts and sciences, their ends also are many. The end of the medical art is health, that of shipbuilding a vessel, that of strategy, victory, that of economics, wealth. Aristotle took these claims as starting points for practical reason. As he took these as what philosophers call basic, as things known immediately by both the many and the wise. And that's not true in our time. 
Deep cultural shifts in modernity have resulted in widespread skepticism regarding any claims about the proper ends of medicine uh, or any other human activity. Despite this skepticism, however, I'm not going to here defend the premise that the purpose of medicine is the patient's health. Um, I have a book linked with a colleague, um, effort to do so, which I'll show you uh, the title of at the end. You're interested more. Um, but here I'm just going to attempt to show what the premise implies for practices of palliation and for the broader question of what it means to care well for LC and patients like him. So if the end of medicine is health, then palliative medicine practiced as one branch or specialty of medicine will look different than palliative care practiced as a broader and alternative form of professionalized caring. So within a medicine aimed at health, Practitioners who focus on palliation have a rational basis for doing things that preserve and restore health and for not doing things that diminish health or undermine the conditions necessary for patients to entrust themselves to physicians when their health is threatened or diminished. Now, it may seem counter counterintuitive to think of palliation as aiming at health. Palliation, it seems, is mobilized precisely when health can no longer be restored. So for example, we might think about LC, we'll never again say about LC, he's got metastatic pancreatic cancer, we're never again gonna say of him that he is healthy. But that way of thinking misunderstands both health and the practices of palliative medicine. Health is a positive capacity, uh, not merely the absence of disease. Leon Cass memorably put it in his 1972 essay uh, regarding the end of medicine and the pursuit of health. That health is the well-working of the organism as a whole, or put another way, an activity of the body in accord with its specific excellences. The health of a squirrel, Cass noted, is displayed in the characteristic activities of squirrels, such as bearing nuts, chattering, climbing trees. Because of the characteristic activities of humans, are much more varied, so are their expressions of health. But such expressions include the capacity to move one's bowels, to eat and digest food without vomiting it up, to sit or lie or walk without racking pain, to stay awake and to fall asleep at the proper times. And health is also a matter of degree. Physicians cannot return LC to the state of health he had before his diagnosis, as we already said, but if they helped LC along the way, they'd go from a state of nausea and constipation and insomnia, racking pain, to tolerating food and moving his bowels, sleeping six hours a night, moving around free of debilitating pain, then they will have contributed objectively to LC's health. And it's just these sorts of contributions to health that make it possible for patients to engage in the Ars Moriendi to engage the task of living well in the face of death, which is what dying well is. It's living well in the face of death. The typical tasks of the Ars Moriendi are not physically demanding in the usual sense. They rarely involve climbing mountains or running marathons, but they do require some attention, some thought, often some communication through voice or writing, often being present relationally to others. These tasks are made extraordinarily difficult by racking pain and breathlessness, by vomiting and constipation, by insomnia and delirium. 
by treating and relieving these disabling conditions, palliative medicine helps to restore that measure of health that patients need in order to participate in and not merely be passive to the task of dying well. And here uh, an important distinction comes into view. It's one thing for health professionals to palliate disabling symptoms with an eye to preserving and restoring a measure of health, a measure again that makes it possible for the patient to participate in dying well. It's another thing for healthcare professionals to palliate symptoms without respect to whether doing so restores health. It seems to me that clinicians should respect this distinction, embracing the former practices of palliation and resisting the latter, but physicians are tempted to elide this distinction or to regard it as of no clinical moral significance. So if we return to our case, let's say that Elsie goes through chemotherapy. His disease progresses, he sees his primary physician, says, doc, I do not want to languish and suffer in the final stages of this disease. If I come to the point in which I cannot tolerate living any longer, and if I ask you to do so, would you sedate me until I'm unconscious and keep me that way until I die? At a later visit, he adds, it's very important for me to have some autonomy and control at the end of my life. I don't expect I'll need to use it, but would you provide me a prescription for medicines that I can take to end my life if I cannot go on? So how is it that LC, along with the good people of California, Oregon, Washington, the District of Columbia, Colorado, Vermont, Hawaii, Montana, New Jersey, the list grows by the year. Uh, Massachusetts is currently likely to pass a assisted dying bill. I know the Connecticut legislature considered one this past spring and likely will consider it again. Um, how is it that the, so many folks have come to see sedation unto death or physician-assisted suicide as perhaps the most, or in Canada, frank euthanasia, as the most reasonable courses of action when they face the prospect of losing their capacities. There's more to be said here than, than I can say, um, but it's evident that the cultures of late modern Western wealthy societies do not form in us imaginations capable of receiving unwanted suffering, death, and loss of control as anything other than meaningless burdens, much less capable of receiving these burdens as invitations to live well in the face of debility and death. With respect to these burdens, when the meaning is gone, the suffering remains. So if Elsie, or if Elsie's physician, is not capable of seeing Elsie's suffering, loss of control, and even dying as an occasion in which redemptive purposes might still be at work. As experiences that invite LC, the sufferer, to new and worthwhile practices, then the putative goal of medicine to preserve and restore LC's health seems beside the point. In contemporary Western culture, the only reasonable response to unwanted suffering, more importantly, the only compassionate response, is to get rid of it. And under this cultural pressure, then, the medical profession has been steadily setting aside uh, enthusiasts might say they've been even overcoming, but setting aside it or overcoming the constraints imposed by aiming only at health. And it has been taking on more expansive aims. For example, the World Health Organization defines palliative care as an approach that improves the quality of life of patients and their families facing the problems associated with life-threatening illness through the prevention and relief of suffering, 
By means of early identification and impeccable assessment and treatment of pain and other problems, physical, psychosocial, and spiritual. Now, note how this formulation gives palliative care a seemingly boundless scope of responsibility. What problems, after all, are excluded from the categories of physical, psychosocial, and spiritual? Note also that in this formulation, medicine does not aim to preserve and restore a measure of health, but rather to relieve suffering and improve, in this important term in our time, quality of life. When efforts to relieve suffering and to improve quality of life break free of the limitations imposed by medicine's traditional orientation to the patient's health, then physicians begin to see all forms of suffering, including existential or spiritual suffering, as conditions which call for medical treatment. Because palliative care in particular seeks to minimize suffering and maximize quality of life, and because suffering and quality of life can only be assessed authoritatively by the sufferer, palliative care's practitioners come to trade their own clinical judgment for the direction given by patient preferences. The language of patient preferences links the goal of control over one's destiny together with the goal of freedom from unwanted suffering. That becomes the good death. The American Association of Hospice and Palliative Medicine makes this link explicit. The goal of palliative care is to prevent and relieve suffering and to support the best possible quality of life for patients and their families, regardless of their stage of disease or the need for other therapies in accordance with their values and preferences. Now, if LC's physician sets out to minimize LC's suffering and to maximize LC's quality of life and to do so in accordance with his values and preferences, then it, it seems that the physician has a good reason to aim at LC's death itself as one of her goals. A growing proportion of the public and of the medical profession have come to think in just this way. The palliative care literature speaks about speaks less about leaving disabling symptoms so that patients can live as well as possible in the face of death. It speaks more about treating unwanted symptoms so that patients can die comfortably. I'll give you just one prominent example. The National Hospice and Palliative Care Organization describes hospice as follows. Hospice affirms the concept of palliative care as an intensive program that enhances comfort and promotes the quality of life for individuals and their families. When cure is no longer possible, hospice recognizes that a peaceful and comfortable death is an essential goal of healthcare. So note these shifts, shifts from aiming at health to maximizing quality of life, from proportionate relief of symptoms to minimizing suffering, from helping patients who are dying in hopes they can die well to helping patients to die by giving them a good death, where a good death is a death the patient chooses and which is as free of suffering as possible. The shifts may seem subtle, particularly looking at one of them in isolation from the others, but together they're quite consequential for how we think about what it means to care well for LC and others like him. Put it plainly, when the goal of medicine shifts from helping patients who are dying to helping patients to die, practices that render patients unconscious or that directly hasten their death no longer seem like last resort options. 
Indeed, such practices, including palliative sedation of consciousness, assisted suicide, euthanasia, seem to follow ineluctably from making the relief of suffering and satisfying patient choices medicine's first principles. So why turn back? Why might we constrain palliative care for patients like LC to the traditional goal of medicine, namely health? Boundaries help to resist against endemic temptations. So I'm not suggesting that suffering is good in itself. Certainly not that we should ignore patient suffering. But physicians who care for patients with advanced illness have long known that both they and their patients will at times be tempted to do away with suffering by doing away with the sufferer, the patient. So to mitigate against that temptation, physicians have for two plus millennia, and this is not to say all physicians have sworn this, that would be a, that would be a gross misrepresentation of the history of medicine, but they have sworn in the Hippocratic Oath, I will enter homes only for the good of the sick, and I will neither give a deadly drug to anybody who asks for it, nor will I make a suggestion to this effect. This profession against ever acting in a way that intentionally aims at the patient's death is found in every public statement of medical professions uniformly from the time of Hippocrates, not followed uniformly, but is, insofar as doctors get together and say, this is what we're gonna be committed to, uniform, up until the last generation. Um, this boundary against diminishing or destroying the patient's health not only gives patients a reason to trust physicians, but the boundary gives physicians the freedom they need to do their work. So for example, when I take care of patients and their families who are wary of what hospice will do to the one who is dying, it helps very much that I can look them in the eye and tell them that as a physician, I'm committed to never intentionally hastening, hastening or causing a patient's death. The boundary creates a space in which I and other physicians can act decisively to palliate distressing symptoms. And we can accept side effects, even the foreseen side effect of hastening the patient's death. We can accept that when we have proportionate reason to do so. That is the simplest formulation of the the uh, rule of double effect, which is a, a rule that has long been uh, essential to guiding medicine, keeping, helping physicians discern when they can accept difficult side effects that they foresee accompanying their healing efforts. Without this boundary, the commitment to never intend harm to the health of LC or anyone else, that's, that's the boundary, Without that, then patients and family members have good reason to worry that the morphine that leads to sedation is dosed not in proportion to the pain or breathlessness that the patient experiences, but in an effort to hurry the dying process along. And the question of trust is paramount. People in our plural culture have trusted institutional medicine in no small part because preserving and restoring health is a goal shared broadly across diverse moral traditions and communities. Assisting patients to die is not a goal shared in the same way. How and to what extent suffering should be treated is also the subject of widespread disagreements, particularly when that suffering is not obviously related to health. Already, the work of hospice and palliative medicine is inhibited by the fact that many Americans 
And this is particularly true among minority communities and religious communities. Uh, are, they're suspicious that hospice and palliative medicine has unmoored itself from the constraints traditionally respected by the profession of medicine. That we have moved from proportionate palliation, for example, to rationalized processes of getting people dead. When physicians set themselves outside the traditional constraints and goals of medicine, when we fail to recognize and respect the value of what was once called the Ars Moriendi, we erode the public trust we need to provide appropriate palliation to patients like LC. And to the extent patients like LC distrust hospice and palliative medicine, they will go without all of the good that hospice and palliative medicine can do to contribute to the conditions necessary for dying well. And let me close here with just uh, to, to speak to something that sometimes comes up, and I want to be clear about this. What I'm not saying is that hospice and palliative medicine docs are out there looking to kill people, that, that we have this kind of sinister uh, group of people who are acting not in good faith, but are actually looking to kind of ease people off. I don't think that's true. I mean, I'm sure it's true some docs somewhere. That's not true. Uh, rather, what we're seeing, I think, is this, this steady incremental movement to think of medicine, particularly for those who have advanced illness, not as aiming to accompany them and, and seek to sustain that measure of health that's still sustainable and to, to restore that which is lost that still can be restored so that a person can live as well as possible in the face of their dying. We've been moving more and more to the expectation that we're to give people the good death that they want when they want it. Um, and we bring that about often by using, uh, I think, problematically, by using medications that relieve symptoms in a way that detaches from the norms of proportionality and the important norm of never intentionally aiming at the patient's death that have been so central to keeping medicine on the rails in care for those who are sick.